Worship together as we open God's Word to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. It's a joy uh, to worship the Lord Jesus today, uh, not just because I am a graduate of Appalachian State University. <laughs> Got a little proof to tell about it today. Uh, it is the first Sunday of our fall sermon series. We're going to devote the next few weeks and months to walking through the book of 1 Peter together, entitled the sermon series, The People of God. In the land of exile. If you remember back in the spring, we walked through the book of Daniel. If you remember that title of that sermon series was the story of God in the land of exile. How God is and he does not change in moments of, of exile. I think what we see in First Peter is those same truths applied to the church of the living God. And the theme throughout both sermon series purposely here and planned is the theme of, of, of exiles. That Christians... As we walk our journey here on the earth, regardless of how, how long or short uh, the Lord Jesus gives us here on this earth, uh, we are to live as exiles. This place is not our home. And this is exactly what Peter is writing to remind the church of in these moments of frustration, in these moments of dispersion, as the Christians are scattered all throughout the region. Now, Peter's reminding them, hey, persevere here, stand firm here. Because this earth is not our home. I believe one of the theme verses of First Peter is in chapter 5, verse 12, where Peter says to stand firm in the true grace of God. You see, many, many centuries ago, Peter is writing perhaps for the same application that we have for us in our hearts here today is to stand firm. The people of God, the church, the body of Christ, to stand firm. We stand firm not in, in selfishness or in stubbornness, but we are to stand firm in what? The grace, the true grace is what Peter says, the true grace of God. This morning we're going to be in verses 1 through 12, which in Greek are one very, very long sentence. And so although we have tried, I have tried to break it up into some form of an outline, it's helpful for us to remember that Peter, as he was writing this, this was one continuous thought for him from beginning to end. Hopefully in our time together, we'll see how that fits together in a way that we can see that there is great hope in being the people of God. As we think back through generations from the time that Peter has written this text to us gathered here today where we receive this same word of the Lord, the one thing that will unite the people of God throughout every single generation, and that is the truth of our salvation, that by the grace of God, through faith in God, we are the people of God. There's great hope for us in that truth. And what Peter is writing to say, that produces within us what he calls a living hope. And so the main idea of our text today is that those who have been saved by God live with hope in God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin. God, what a great privilege. God, to stand uh, before these people and to proclaim this word. God, it is your word and these are your people. And God, the truth in it transcends generations. And so, Father, as we open and as we proclaim in the preaching of your word this morning, our prayer is, God, that you would reveal your hope, God, to unbelieving hearts this morning. God, would you restore hope to disbelieving hearts this morning? And God, would you renew hope to hearts that we know are all prone to wonder? Father, would you accomplish that, we pray, by the power of your spirit and the truth of your word? We pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Let's begin by considering in these first two verses the great truth, the great reality that we could sing about all day, that we could preach about all day, and that is this, that you have been saved by God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Verse 2 says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter begins this letter with a very customary greeting. You'll find these in a lot of New Testament letters, but what's important in 1 Peter chapter 1, look at how Peter begins by addressing himself. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. If you've read the Gospels, familiar with New Testament Christianity, you know that, that, that Peter is a central figure in the very beginning of the movement of the church as one of Jesus' devoted disciples. But in this moment, he writes to the church that is scattered to make crystal clear that he is writing as an apostle. He's writing from, him, from his apostolic authority, that Peter is instrumental, has been instrumental in the founding of the New Testament church. No longer do we have the Peter who, who cut off the ear of the guard in the garden. You remember that? No longer do we have the Peter who denied Jesus three times. Uh, what we see here in First Peter is Peter has assumed the authority that Jesus promised to him. You remember when he says that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Jesus, in this moment, promises Peter, God, I, I will use you, Peter, to do great things as I am building my church. That's the Peter that we have here, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he makes crystal clear who he's writing this letter to. He looks out at the scattered church, and he calls them elect exiles. It's important that we take these two words and we keep them together. Peter is writing to them to remind them that they are elect. In Greek, what this means is they are chosen by God. Scripture teaches that each one of us, as believers in the Lord Jesus, were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. Peter, in this verse, is reminding them, even though you're scattered now, even though you're distant now, you have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world. But he also follows that with the word exiles. And the Greek just gives us the idea of being an alien, being a foreigner, being a stranger to this earthly home here in heaven. He's reminding them, you have been chosen by God and you've been chosen by God. Therefore, this earth is only your temporary residence. This earth is not your home. But we, we believe that Peter has put these together because he's reminding them as they face persecution, as they face difficulty, as they face suffering, as they face trials, as they face tribulation, do not forget who you are and where your forever home is. And you see, that's the truth that transcends generations. Because here's the reality of our hearts this morning. We all walked into this room with a burden on our heart. We all walked in this room with some form of, of suffering, whether it's temporary in the short term or might seem long term from our vantage point this morning. And here's the great truth that we need to apply to our heart. In that reality, do not forget that you have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world, and this earth is not your home. And he says that these exiles, these Christians are in dispersion, Peter goes on to explain. 
What he's saying here is they, they've been scattered throughout this region, and he lists these different places. All of them are, are in or around modern-day Turkey. And so what he's saying here is the church is scattered. The, the global church is what he's talking about. We know there are pockets of believers in different places, and so it's not like the church is not meeting together. But what he's saying is you're, you're, you're meeting in pockets, but don't forget about one another. There are many of you, and you are scattered in this moment. It's fascinating as we trace New Testament Christianity, even until today, Christianity is still relatively scattered, but there will be a time in which we all gather. And you know when that time is? It's captured beautifully in the book of Revelation at the marriage supper of the Lamb. You remember that picture? And the picture here is that we will one day, although we're scattered now, one day we will all gather And it's described from people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people will gather. And you remember where we gather around? The throne of God. And so here's the great hope for for Christians that Peter was writing to and for us here today. We might feel distant. We might feel disjointed. We might feel scattered. We might wonder what God is doing in and among the global church, maybe even in and among our church. But here's the great promise of Scripture, that one day those who are scattered will one day gather And we will gather before the feet of our king. And so as we live in suffering, as we walk through persecution, don't forget that. Remember that, that one day we will gather around the throne. But Peter very quickly moves on. He doesn't really dwell on these temporary circumstances. History teaches us that they're actually quite severe. They're living under the persecution of Nero, which history says is some of the harshest persecution that Christians have ever faced. But Peter doesn't dwell there. He also doesn't minimize it or trivialize it. He gives it right position, but he grounds that in the truth of who God is. He, he points them, and I would say he points us. He grounds their hearts. He grounds our hearts on the truth that we are, again, chosen by God, not at home here on the earth, and therefore we have been reminded of our salvation. So wherever you are, whatever you're going through, however long or short it may feel, how how heavy that burden you carry is, be reminded today of the salvation that God has given to you in Christ. Be grounded in your faith, that you've been chosen by God before the foundation of the world, and he both saves you and he sustains you. All that's in verse 1. We've got 11 more to go today. You ready? Verse 2 describes this salvation that we have inherited beautifully. It says, we are foreknown by God. We are foreknown by God. In, in Greek, as this sentence fits together, this foreknowledge of God actually modifies the way in which we have been chosen. So what we're saying here is that you were foreknown by God. Before the foundation of the world, you were known by God. Before you took your first breath, you were known by God. God does not save random people. He saves adopted sons and daughters, and he knows as our father, the identity. He created our identity as his sons and as his daughters. So don't forget that, that we are foreknown by God. The second piece, he says, in the sanctification of the Spirit, this also describes a way in which we were chosen. To put this together, what Peter is saying here is that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we might grow in Christ. There's no such thing as a Christian that he knows that doesn't grow. He puts these together, that he 
knows you, foreknown by God, and the sanctification of the Spirit, that when the Spirit enters into us, he begins this sanctifying work in us and through us. And all of this comes together. The third way he describes this, for the obedience to Jesus Christ. You see, the foreknowledge of God, the sanctification of the, his Spirit's work within us were intended, were given to us for obedience to Jesus Christ. You see, there, there is purpose in all of this. And we, as, we, as we trace the, 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 the truths of Scripture, what we see from the very beginning is God has created all of this. He has orchestrated all of this. And what he desires from us is our joyful and willful obedience. That's the only thing he requires of us. He's provided all of this to us, and the way in which we respond to him is obedience by faith. One thing I missed in my initial reading of of this text is the beautiful Trinitarian language that Peter uses here. It's a beautiful description of our salvation. Look, we're foreknown by God in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ the Son. Peter connects all three persons of the Trinity, all three persons of the Godhead. The entire Trinity is is coming together and working on your behalf to adopt you into the family of God, to grow you into the image of God for obedience to the Son of God. That is what God has done for you in salvation. in In his foreknowledge, he has adopted you into his family that you might grow into his image through obedience to his Son. That's a summary of the Christian life. And that is the description of our life until one day we leave this scattered world to be gathered around his throne forever. So again, be reminded this morning, wherever you are, whatever is frustrating you this morning, you have been saved by God. If you're frustrated by the geopolitical culture of our world, perhaps some of the political climate of our own country, or maybe there's a personal conflict in your own heart, What Peter is writing to say to us this morning is this. In these temporary frustrations, remember your eternal salvation. He's given us perspective. Don't forget that. In all that you walk through in life, the good days, the bad days, the long days, the short days, remember your eternal salvation. So we're living in exile, in dispersion. What do we do with this salvation I believe that's what Peter explains to us in verses 3 through 12. I summarize it like this. What do we do with this salvation? We live with hope. We live with hope. There is no place in the kingdom of God for a hopeless Christian. It's the greatest oxymoron of the Christian faith. And what Peter provides for us in these verses is three particular ways, I believe, that we can live with hope. Let's begin verse 3 through 5 and see how we can have hope in our inheritance. Verse 3, Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, that is kept for you in heaven. For by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. As Peter begins to describe this hope, he begins with this blessing. Why? Because God is to be blessed. Even more than all that he has provided for us, God is to be blessed for who he is. Why? Because according to his great mercy, because of all that he has done for us. So what has his mercy accomplished within us? Peter writes, 
that he has caused us to be born again. Peter makes crystal clear, sure, that we know who deserves the credit for our new birth. That, 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 that through God's rich mercy that he has lavished on us, he, we have been born again. And just like your physical birth, none of us can take credit for our, our own physical birth, can we? And none of us can take credit for our own spiritual birth. It is something that has happened to us, not because of us. And Peter connects that according to his great mercy. You have been born again. But don't miss what we have been born to. That we have been born to a living hope. A hope that is alive. And how is it alive? Through the resurrection of the dead. Listen, there are three sermons you could preach in this verse alone. But let's summarize it like this. Our hope is alive today because it is alive in Christ. And that's why there's no such thing as a hopeless Christian because our hope is not in you. It's not in ourselves. It's not in our situations. It's not in our circumstances. Our hope is fixed in Christ. And therefore we live it because we haven't done anything to earn it. And because he is alive forever, guess what? Our hope is alive forever. Our hope is not temporary. It doesn't ebb and and flow because if it ebbs and flows, then it's dependent upon someone other than him. And what Peter's writing to say is, no, it's not. You have been given a living hope because Christ is alive. Then he goes on to describe this inheritance that we've received here. And look at how he describes it. He says, this inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's imperishable. Our inheritance will, will, will never perish. The prodigal son, you remember that parable? The prodigal son cannot squander the inheritance that we have received in Christ. There's nothing that you can do to mess up the inheritance that God through Christ has given to you. It's undefiled. It is unable to be tainted or twisted. Your inheritance that you've received in Christ and your salvation is unfading. It will not fade. It will not tarnish. We have these uh, chairs on our front porch of our home. They used to be this beautiful, bright indigo blue. It matched perfectly. Five years later, after the heat and the sun has scorched them, they're this faded and tarnished blue. They don't look like they used to look. Why? Because they have faded. I'm sure you probably have some furniture that's done the same thing, right? It fades over time. Hey, listen, your inheritance doesn't. It does not fade. It does not tarnish. There's nothing. There's nothing that the sun can do as it beats out on it. There's nothing that these long summer days can do to make your faith fade, make your inheritance fade. In the strongest words possible, Peter is stating to them and to us that our inheritance is both sure and secure. Look how he says it. He says, it is kept for you. We can't keep it ourselves. You know why? Because God knows that you can't keep track of your car keys. He knows you can't even keep track of your cell phone. It's why you have a smartwatch and you have to ding your phone to find out where it is in the house. He's not going to entrust his inheritance to you because we would blow it. But the good news, look, it's talking to me. It knew I was talking about my watch. The good news of Christ Jesus is this, that our inheritance is fixed in Jesus. It is being kept 
for us. And look how it's being guarded. It's not being guarded by your power or your will. Your inheritance in Christ is being guarded by God's power. I'd say it's pretty safe. It's not riding around in an armored car with two guards driving it. Like, it's being guarded by the very power of God. Because that's true, we can hope in our inheritance this morning. Because of God's great mercy, it is being kept for us by God's power. This is what's waiting for us, church. This is what is waiting for you, Christian. The inheritance that will not fade, will not be defiled, and will not perish. Therefore, you can live with hope. We hope in our inheritance. Secondly, this one makes us more uncomfortable. We hope in our trials. Verse 6 to 9 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What Peter says is, listen, you can rejoice and find hope in your trials. You know why? He says, for a little while. The longest trial of this earth is yet for a little while. And therefore, we can be grieved with hope. Not because it's easy, not because it's something comfortable for us. We can rejoice because it's temporary for us. Even the greatest trials of your life, the greatest trials of this earth, are yet for a little while. I was finishing uh, the sermon on an airplane ride home. Uh, yesterday morning, I had my maternal grandmother has been transitioned to hospice care. Uh, and so she will meet the Lord in just a few days. And I went uh, to go say goodbye to her. And she's going to be 96 years old next month. She probably won't make it to that birthday. But if you look from the earth's eyes, she had 94 wonderful years. The last two have been challenging. Dementia is a wicked disease, as many of you know. But, you know, in the world's perspective, 94 out of 96 years is pretty good odds, right? It's a pretty good life. I was thinking about the truth that Peter's writing here. And here's the great reality. Like, listen, even if 96 of your 96 years are filled with suffering and trial and tribulation, if you never know the fullness that you long for here on the earth, what Peter is writing to you to say is this, guess what? Even that trial lasts for a little while. It's just for a moment. And so what he's writing to us to encourage us to say is this, we can hope in our trials because we're looking through the lens of eternity. And our life here is just a vapor, is what Scripture teaches us. And therefore, these trials and tribulations of this earth are minimal. If our life is a vapor, then what is a trial? It's, it's like a mini, mini, mini vapor. It's but for a moment. So we can hope because we have an inheritance that's secure. And these trials, what they do, Peter goes on to say, they, they test the genuineness of your faith. He describes it like gold. Gold is of great value and it's of great purity. And he says that it's tested. 
to produce something in you. The, the value and purity of our faith, even in trials of fire, will result, look what Peter says, in praise and glory to God. So we can hope in our trials because God is using them for his glory. We know not how, we know not when, but for us, because our hope is secure, because we have been saved, we can hope in these trials here in this earth. And God has given all of this to us. And you know what he asks of us? Faith. It's the only thing he requires of us is our faith. Peter says it like this, faith that allows us to love God, to believe in him, that we may receive by grace the outcome of our faith. And you know what the outcome of our faith is? He says it here, the salvation of your soul. You see, this is the purpose of trials. And this is why we can live and hope within them. So we find great hope in our inheritance. We find hope in our trials. And we also find hope in our salvation. Look at verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. Here's what Peter's connecting here. He's saying, concerning this salvation, the prophets talked about it. In fact, the whole Old Testament is looking to it. He even says in verse 12, that the angels long for it. And what Peter says, beloved, child of God, elect exile and dispersion scattered all throughout the world. What all of them were looking for, what all of them were longing for, what all of them were prophesying about, you have received in your salvation. This is why we can hope in all things. Because we have received the promised Christ. The one the Old Testament wrote about. The one the angels long for. We have received by grace through faith for the salvation of our souls. And because this is true in exile, in dispersion, in trials and tribulations, in disappointments and frustration and addiction and in confusion and in sin and in complacency, here's the call of God through these texts this morning is this. Look to God because he has given to you a living hope through his son. And because that is true, we can hope in our salvation. Hope is an interesting idea for the Christian often. Oftentimes we place great thought, but it's a whole lot easier to think about it than it is to apply it to your situation, to your circumstance. If we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we're tempted to fake it. Sometimes we fake it so long we might think our hope is actually dead. But you see, what we're called to is this vibrant, living hope. And so if, if you're here this morning and you have to will your hope into existence, if you have to fake your hope into existence with a smile on your face, hear the invitation of the Spirit of God through the truth of his word. Look to Jesus this morning because he is your living hope. And your hope is alive today because he is alive today. The Bible says it like this, that even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, that God through Christ has made you alive together with him. 
the truth of Scripture, by the grace of God, you have been made alive. And you can have this living hope this morning by turning from your sin and turning from yourself and turning to Jesus for salvation by grace through faith. You see, because those who have been saved by God live with hope in God. There's no other way for the Christian to live. There's no other hope that we can rest upon. You remember that great hymn, My hope is built on nothing less than what? Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but only trust what? In Jesus' name. There's no other way for the Christian to live. And so what Peter is writing to the church to say, listen, don't get so caught looking around you here on this earth. Don't get so caught, don't get so distracted by these trials and these tribulations. Look to the cross of Christ, the place on which Jesus bore the wrath of your sin on your behalf, and accept his invitation into a living hope because he is alive today. The greatest news, I believe, from this text of Scripture is this, that our hope is alive because it is alive in Christ. Our hope is alive. It does not depend upon your pulse rate. It doesn't depend upon your heart rate. Our hope is alive because he is alive. Our hope is secure because he has secured it. You don't have to wake up tomorrow morning and wonder if your hope is as secure tomorrow as it was today when you were sitting in the sanctuary. No, he's taking care of that for you. And as we begin this new sermon series this fall, here is the great invitation for each of us to look to Jesus Christ this morning to remember the salvation that he has afforded to us by his sacrifice on the cross. And here's the application. And it's an ca- application for all of us. Allow him and the truth of his sacrifice on the cross for you to breathe life into your hope. Allow him and the power of his resurrection to resurrect your hope this morning. Because it is that hope that we carry as we live this life, scattered all across this world, walking through trials of various kinds for various lengths of time, that we are chosen by God before the foundation of this world to live this life he has entrusted to us, that he's given to us. In a foreign land, in dispersion, longing for our forever home with Jesus, that those who have been saved by God Live with hope in God. This morning, as we think by way of invitation, perhaps you're here this morning and and know nothing of this hope. Hear the invitation this morning to turn to Jesus and allow him to give you a living hope in salvation. For the rest of us, you might have limped into this world this morning. You might have limped into this sanctuary this morning. You might have done it with a smile on your face. But if you're honest about your heart, your, your heart's broken over a family situation. Your heart's broken over a son or daughter, maybe living in an estranged relationship, maybe walking away from God this morning. Maybe it's difficulty at work or or, or frustration outside of work. Listen, here is the same invitation. Look to Jesus and allow him to resurrect your sleepy, complacent, and distant hope because those who have been saved by God live with hope in God. Would you pray with me? Father, as we think how to rightly respond to the truth of your word, we come before you now, and God, here is our plea. God, we ask you to create within us 
hearts that are willing and ready to respond to the truth of your word. Lord, your word is living and active. Scripture teaches that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. So, Lord, we open our hearts to you now, both individually and corporately as a church, and we ask you, God, to do the work that you must do to transform us and to conform us more into your image and more into your likeness. So, Lord, we ask you to look within our hearts. God, create this living hope where it is not there. And God, resurrect it where it is that we might live, Father, with this living hope because we have been saved by God and therefore we live with hope in God. Thank you for these truths, Jesus. I pray you would apply them to our hearts now as we respond in worship. In Jesus' name, amen.